Well, we've been walking through the gospel according to Matthew, and I think this is our 49th sermon in Matthew, and we're in chapter 18. It's page 773 if you're borrowing one of our Bibles there in the chair, and I think we've got, you know, about a year's worth of sermons yet, and I don't know about you, but it's been so encouraging and so rich and so challenging, and especially chapter 18. This is our fourth sermon on chapter 18, and remember, this is the rule of the community. This is what Jesus is laying out. How are his disciples to live together? What's his plan for the community? Jesus has had his Sermon on the Mount, 5, 6, and 7. He had his Sermon on the Mount of Transfiguration, and now we have the Sermon on the Congregation. So open up with me, and I just want to remind us, we're in 1821 and following, but this is all goes together, so I just want to remind us where we've been. Since we are the community of disciples, it's important that we get this right. Jesus' rule for us. So look with me there, starting in chapter 18, verse 1. The question of who is the greatest, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And remember we talked about it, it's not innocence or anything like that, it's about social status, it's about humility. Whoever humbles himself, verse 4, like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives, and not only becoming like, but also welcoming children. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But lots of warnings in this chapter. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Jesus is very serious about how we treat children. Verse 7, he's very serious about sin. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Jesus really cares about the holiness of his community. And then he gives us a parable. When there is straying, what are we, what posture are we to adopt? Verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who's in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it's not the will of my Father who's in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And so we're to care about our community and we're to even go after straying sheep lest they perish. That's the responsibility for us. Jesus is talking to the church here. He's not talking to leaders. And then he gives us these three steps on how we're to handle sin in the community. We looked at last week, verse 15. If your brother sins, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Praise God. Step two, but... If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Step three, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Let him be to you as a pagan and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if 
two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Jesus gives us very clear but very countercultural instructions on how we're to handle sin in the community. So Jesus cares, you'll notice here, about purity and holiness. This is a hard chapter, isn't it? It's a lot of hard stuff here. Following Jesus together is not easy. And there's lots of warning. Judgment is mentioned five times. And we could call this chapter the rule of the community. We could call it how to avoid final judgment. We'll see more of it today. This morning, I want us to look at how we are to relate when sinned against on the personal level. Main point, forgiven people forgive people. Two Acts, Acts 1, look at verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? I think Peter thought he was being generous. Jewish tradition at that time said three times and no more. In fact, here's what one rabbi said. If a brother sins against you once, forgive him. If a second time, forgive him. A third time, forgive him. But a fourth time, do not forgive him. And so Peter's like, let me just up the ante. I know it's four's the norm. Let me go with seven. Seven's the number of perfection. I don't want to be called Satan again. Let's go big. Verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. He says, Peter, your mercy needs to be more. Not seven, but 77. Jesus is not saying that the 78th time, that's the end of the mercy road. No, he's basically saying that our forgiveness should be unlimited. You've heard it said, forgive three and no more. But I say to you, as many as 77 times, Jesus ups the ante like we saw so often in Matthew chapter 5 where he concludes in verse 20 I tell you community of disciples unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven Jesus brings a higher standard 77 times I can't help but think that Jesus is alluding to Lamech if you remember Lamech's revenge back in Genesis chapter 4 he kills a man and he says if Cain's revenge is sevenfold then Lamech's is 77 fold Genesis chapter 4 Lamech was extravagant in vengeance we're to be extravagant in grace we're to be like God in this way and with God when there is repentance we are to forgive because on where there's repentance on our part There will be forgiveness on God's part. We are to be a forgiving people, extravagantly so. Then Jesus illustrates it with a parable. Verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debts. Notice how Jesus opens the parable. We saw all those kingdom parables back in chapter 13 and that's what he does here he says the kingdom is like in other words this is what the community looks like when it's living under the rule of king jesus 
This servant, this bondservant, this slave owed 10,000 talents. One talent was about 20 years worth of wages. 10,000. 200,000 years worth of work. A single talent would represent what a bondservant might earn in half of a lifetime, a single talent. So maybe two talents a lifetime. We're talking about 60 million denarii. Today in our terms, we're talking about millions, maybe billions. An astronomical amount for this bondservant. There's no way he's going to pay up. That's the point. He's not going to reach this. And so he pleads. He falls on his knees and implores, please be patient. I can pay, I need time. And astonishingly, the master has pity on him. He forgives the debts. You know, these types of men were not known for pity or mercy. That's why we call them lone sharks, not lone kittens. But the master sees his contrition, he sees his desperation, and he lets him free. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He gives more than he even asks. You notice the servant really only asks for patience. But due to his contrition, his broken spirit, the master forgives the whole debt. This is incredible mercy. That's act one. Let's turn to act two. Look at verse 28 of Matthew 18. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. Now, what would you think should happen, right? What has Jesus taught? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Whatever you do, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Will this forgiven slave practice the golden rule? This man is forgiven millions. And then he runs into a guy, he owed him a measly hundred denarii. A denarii was basically a day's wage for a labor. Flip a page if you need to, to chapter 20, verse 2. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And so 100 days, we're talking three or four months worth of work. This first slave was forgiven 60 million denarii and he gets all up in arms about 100 denarii. 60 million, 100. 200,000 years worth of labor, a few months worth of labor. This second guy owed about one six hundred thousandth of what this first servant was just forgiven. Look at verse 29. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? This man just did the same thing and basically asked the same thing of his master. The first slave said this, and now someone's doing it with a much, much, much smaller offense. Surely he's going to have mercy since he's just been shown such mercy. Surely zillion-dollar forgiveness will lead to a couple hundred-dollar forgiveness. Verse 30. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debts. 
When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servants. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debts. This behavior is incomprehensible. The story's meant to infuriate, and that's what it does with his fellow slaves. They're outraged. They go and they tell the master, who's equally outraged, how could you? And the master throws him in jail till he could pay it all, and he'll never pay it all. And actually, I'm reading from the ESV, but the ESV softens the word a little bit. It does give us a footnote, though, that gets it right. It says jailers, but the word means tormentors. This wicked servant's not just jailed, but tortured. Forgiveness that was freely bestowed is all of a sudden sharply withdrawn. And what's the punchline? What's the point? What does King Jesus have for us? What conclusion, what takeaway do we have? He concludes it as he often does in verse 35. So also, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your hearts. Strikingly, God refuses to forgive the unforgiving. Plain as day, clear as crystal. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God's not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he reap. Forgiveness is serious business. His mercy will turn to wrath for those who do not forgive others after having been forgiven. All this debt language we found in the parable, it should send us back to Matthew chapter 6. Right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Many scholars of Matthew say that the Lord's Prayer here is actually the very center of the Sermon on the Mount's. Remember what we saw there in chapter 6, verse 12, part of the prayer. Forgive us our debts, same language as we also, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then look at verse 14, again, same teaching, just to see how serious Jesus is about forgiveness. Verse 14 of chapter 6, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses this is so serious the end of the day one of the many tests of our faith do we actually have true faith is whether or not we will forgive and if we refuse to forgive we will end up being shown that our faith was false we'll be judged notice the conditions if if Jesus is responding here to Peter's question which is addressed ultimately to us so if you do not forgive the Father will do the same thing we have illustrated in the parable. Here's how J.C. Ryle puts it. There will be no forgiveness in that day for unforgiving people. Such people would be unfit for heaven. They would not be able to value a dwelling place to which mercy is the only title and in which mercy is the eternal subject of song. Surely if we mean to stand at the right hand when Jesus sits on the throne of his glory... We must learn while we are on earth to forgive. This is what Jesus calls to. This is the way of the kingdom of Christ. Remember how he starts in verse 23. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to. The kingdom brings responsibility. 
the kingdom of Christ brings mercy and mandate, grace and demand. Or as theologians might put it, justification and sanctification. King Jesus expects forgiveness to change us. He expects radical mercy to make us merciful, radical grace to make us gracious. He expected forgiveness to transform. And one of the things that we see again and again is that the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the scribes and Pharisees, weren't transformed by forgiveness. They lost sight of their own brokenness and finitude and they end up thinking, well, we're the chosen people of God and they look down on others. Thought they were better than others because they lost sight of their own sin. One of my favorite stories, flip over, Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter seven. Luke, chapter seven. A powerful story of how forgiveness transforms to people who understand their sin and at the very same time, people who think they're just fine aren't transformed. Look at Luke chapter 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointments. This woman comes in, most likely a prostitute, probably already encountered Jesus. She hears, she comes in with, with brokenness. But notice the, the antagonist, the religious leader, verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet... He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering, remember, he was just thinking this to himself, and Jesus answers his thoughts. Jesus answered, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both now. Which of them will love him more? I just loved that Jesus is so gracious and patient with prostitutes and Pharisees. Verse 43, Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointments. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Forgiveness had the proper effect on this woman. It transformed her. It changed her. But clearly here in Matthew 18, it has not transformed this servant. He's forgiven. 
And then he immediately withholds forgiveness. And the result is that forgiveness is withdrawn from him. Forgiven people forgive people. And friends, we have been forgiven so much. We're like the first servant. We owe a debt we cannot pay. Billions. We've sinned against a holy God in word and thought and deed, our evil thoughts, our impure motives, our wicked words, our gossip, our lust, anger, pride, covetousness, things we should have done but have left undone. We've got all these sins of commission, things we've done, but all these sins of omission, things we should do and don't. Day after day and moment after moments, we need forgiveness and mercy and praise God in Christ we have it we could never save ourselves the debt is too large grace is and must be completely free and totally unmerited which is why we sing the songs that we sing not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands could my zeal no respite no in other words could I have unending zeal all the time None of us have that, by the way. But could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. I love Psalm 103. One of the most beautiful portraits of forgiveness we have in Scripture. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, Oh, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we're dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it's gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. I wonder, can you read this psalm, sing this song, and resonate? So I know, I know that... The, the temperature of our heart comes and goes. And, and we all show emotion differently outwardly. 
But when is the last time you've been emotionally a wreck in a good way over the fact that your sins are forgiven? If not, maybe you have too high a view of yourself. Maybe you need to read the Bible a little bit more because when we read the Bible, we come face to face with who we are actually. And it's pictures a bit bleaker than we might learn from popular culture. Same with his holiness. Again, we're not going to learn about the holiness of God really anywhere in our world and sadly most churches. But when we read the Bible, we see God's infinite holiness and our total depravity. And it should move us to be so thankful for mercy and grace. And then it should move us to be a people of mercy and grace. We've been shown so much mercy. How can we not extend mercy and grace to others? Here's how Paul puts it in Ephesians 4. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Why must we forgive as God in Christ forgave you? Lack of forgiveness is a gospel issue, friends. We're debtors to mercy alone. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. And so why must we? Why should we be a forgiving people? Well, two main reasons, because we've been forgiven so much, but also because the king demands it. Right here in verse 35, it's a warning. Matthew 18, 35 so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your hearts. So we have this blended motive here, gratitude, but also the fear of God, which makes sense because God is, yes, a God of mercy, but he's also holy. So we must be a forgiving people. And I realize this is hard. Forgiveness can be terribly hard, especially if you've been wronged in a very significant way or if you've been wronged over and over again. Forgiveness is costly. It requires death. Forgiveness is really, though, a confession. It's a matter of belief. Do we truly believe God is who he is? When we forgive others, we're saying, God's going to handle this, either in the cross of Christ, and it's already done, or one day he will make all things right. Forgiveness is a confession that vengeance belongs to the Lord. Forgiven people forgive people. Kids, look up here real quick, especially kids with siblings. There's a little thing in the White House that happens from time to time called sibling rivalry. And uh, if you've got siblings, I know that it occurs in your house as well. This is for kids, but really for all people. But kids, when you sin against your sibling, you ought to practice forgiveness. Let me show you what we do at the White House. We practice this. We get a lot of practice. We're still working on it. Here's how it should look, though. You sin against a brother or sister in some way. Whatever it is that you do, you hit them, smack them, take a toy. I don't know. I don't know what happens in your house. You sin against your your sibling, and you realize that you've done it, or maybe even your parents correct you. Either way, this is what you ought to do, something like this. So you've sinned, and you, you know that, and either you feel bad, and you know it was wrong. Act on that. Act on that. Don't ignore that. could be the Spirit of God moving you, and you always want to follow the Spirit. Or if your parent says, you need to apologize. Don't just do this, I'm sorry, sorry. 
That's not, that's not good. That's not the way of Jesus. Here's what it'll look like. Come to the person, look, to, look your sibling in the face and say, I am sorry for, and then tell them what you did. And you'll know what you did. I'm sorry for hitting you when you took my Lego. So you're naming it. And if there's a way that you can use the language of the Bible to do that, do that. I'm sorry for acting out in anger toward you. I'm sorry for coveting, wanting your thing too much. So you're naming the sin. That's a true biblical confession. I am sorry for, name it, and then ask for a transaction. Will you forgive me? And whoever's been sinned against, you ought to be quick to say, I forgive you. I need Jesus too. You need Jesus. I forgive you. So that kind of thing, especially if you've got you know, more than two kids, if you've got more than three or four, this happens all the time. This is the culture of the home confession and repentance. I am sorry for, will you forgive me? Yes, I forgive you. Forgiven people, forgive people. And when we forgive, how do we know that we've actually forgiven? It's not just saying, yeah, sorry, then you go and do it again. No, 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 no. Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker, I want to keep these before you because they're so helpful, lays out four promises of forgiveness. How do we know if we've forgiven biblically? We have four promises. Number one, I promise I won't dwell on this incident. And so when we grant forgiveness, it's hard, right? It's very hard to grant forgiveness. But when we're doing that, again, we're saying this is taken care of at the cross of Christ, nailed to the cross. Or if the person is not a believer, God's going to sort it out, either at the cross or in judgment day. I need to stop dwelling on it. It's done. Nailed to the cross. I will not dwell on this incident. Number two, I promise I won't bring up this incident and use it against you. So if you've forgiven somebody, and then you bring it up again later, you haven't forgiven them. I promise I won't bring up this incident and use it against you. Number three, I promise I won't talk to others about this incident. It's done. It's been forgiven. Number four, I promise I won't allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. There's been reconciliation once there's been repentance. This is the stuff of a gospel culture in a home and in a church. Forgiven people forgive people. To withhold forgiveness is to show we're not forgiven. And it's just, it's just so sweet to have this culture in a home or in a church. We, just, we realize we're sinners. We're going to mess up. We're going to sin. I'm not going to try to hide it. I'm not going to try to defend myself. I'm going to own it. I'm sinned against you. Again, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? I forgive you this aroma of the gospel continually going back to the cross of Christ. It's so freeing. It honors God. It helps others. It frees us. When we refuse to forgive, forgive others for what they've done, we're the ones that are shackled. Emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, even physiologically. As has been said, to live in this state of unforgiveness is like drinking poison regularly but expecting the other person to die from it. The community of Jesus must be a grudge-free zone. Drop the grudges, let go of anger, vengeance, put it away, bitterness. A community of the forgiven must be a forgiving community. Forgiven people forgive people. Let's pray together.